hello, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed Senior thesis process and experience. I'm your producer, Albert Corellis, filling in for your lovely host, Tommy Shack. Today you'll hear Tommy talking with Reed Religion major, class of 23, Perry Joy Long, about her thesis on race and origin history as understood through the theology of a pastor with a uniquely inclusive congregation. Perry, why don't you finish that introduction yourself? Hi, my name is Perry Joy Long. I'm from Annapolis, Maryland, and I was a religion major and English minor at Reed. Title of my thesis is Bringing the Truth to Bear, Obed Dickinson in an Imagined Community of Racial Equality in 19th Century Salem, Oregon. And my thesis advisor was Mike Fote. Wow, okay. That is a long title and scary sounding. Can you break it down? (laughs) Certainly. So in its broad strokes, my thesis examines the intersections of race, religion, and the law in 19th and early 20th century Oregon through the life and theology of a man named Reverend Obed Dickinson. Um, so Oregon in the mid 1800s was not a great place. (laughs) No, no, it was largely exclusionary when it came to, um, issues of race pretty much was settled with the intent of becoming a kind of white utopia. As you saw some more tensions looming, you saw Southern and Western whites coming to Oregon. Like I said, to create a kind of white utopia that was free of slavery, but also pretty much free of Black people as well. You see a lot of exclusionary laws being passed on the basis of race. And so what was really unique about Obed Dickinson and his church is that he decided to admit um, three formerly enslaved Black persons into his congregation right around the beginning of the like Civil War tensions at a time when there had been, at this point, two, and then there's about to be a third racial exclusion law that made it illegal to be Black and living in Oregon. So my thesis, basically, I analyze his letters and other accounts from the time and look at the role that Dickinson's understanding of religion played in shaping his views on slavery, racial equality, and actions in response to conflict over the church related to his decision to admit three formerly enslaved members. But then more importantly, I also shine light on their stories and their identities, which haven't been as focused on in Oregon history. Like on the surface, my thesis does obviously focus on Obed. Um, A lot of that was in part just because of the archival resources I had available. But equally fundamental to my thesis were the lives of the Black members of the First Congregational Church in Salem, Oregon. And so that included Robert and Polly Holmes, as well as Elizabeth and William Johnson. And while there's not obviously any record of their writings or their thoughts and little on their lives generally, um, through Obed's account of the racial tensions in the church and uh, brief mentions to them, as well as newspaper accounts, ancestry records and stuff like that. Um, I was able to kind of extract a glimpse of their lives and their stories, which I interwove throughout my thesis while ultimately talking about like his theology and views on race. That sounds really interesting. Tell us how you found your thesis and take us back to the first moment that you kind of became acquainted with this topic. Yeah. So I think initially kind of delving into my going into Oregon history. So I'm from Maryland. I didn't know anything about Oregon history. I definitely was like, noticed that it was to this day, like pretty white when I first yeah. came to Oregon, but I didn't understand why. And I think initially I just kind of wrote it off. It's like, oh, well, like Oregon wasn't a slave state. I didn't really think much more about it. And so as I talk about kind of my intro, a lot of my thesis kind of rose out of my own ignorance of Oregon history. 
junior year, wrote my Jason paper about the Grotto, which is a Catholic sanctuary in Portland, specifically focused on a statue of the Virgin Mary and examining how the ritual architectural priorities of the statue can be seen as like a response to overwhelmingly white Protestant majority in Oregon and anti-Catholic movements in the 1920s, specifically the Klan. And so I think that was my first introduction to the history of white supremacy, nationalism, racism, and racial exclusion in Oregon. And <laughs> definitely, I think it's what initially got me interested with looking at race, religion, and Oregon history for my thesis. And then <laughs> as to my actual topic, so it was not at all what I had set out to do. Um, initially, just wanted to focus on race, religion, and Oregon history, mm-hmm. but kind of through three different case studies. So I was going to do one around the first passage of like the racial exclusion laws in Oregon, so like around 1850s to 60s-ish, which would have been Oba Dickinson, and that would have been one case study. And then like right around the 1900s, another case study related to attempts to remove the exclusion law from Oregon's constitution. And then a 1920s one that was related to um, movements to combat the Klan in Oregon. Oh, most of my fall was spent researching the different topics, going to different archives in the area, which was a challenge. I think I quickly realized that the history preserved in the archives I was looking at was primarily the white history of Oregon. By and large, there's just kind of void surrounding the Black history, um, which is a central role in Oregon history. While we did have a lot of racial exclusion laws, we still did have a small but very vibrant Black community that was integral to the history of the state. And so that was definitely a challenge. And there just wasn't the resources that I was needing in the archives to write chapters <laughs> on these topics. And so I spent most of my fall kind of trial and error, just trying to find something and lots of research, but it just wasn't really happening. And so then come January, sat down with Mike Fote and realized we kind of need to pivot and that the only source I was sort of finding something on was Obed Dickinson and that I needed to make that story my entire thesis. It's been really interesting. You're, I think, the third person I've talked to who has like, spoken about a minority group in this specific area. So I'm learning a lot of Oregon history. I did not know anything before I came here. It's really fascinating. Definitely will always have a passion for Oregon history. It's just so unlike what we've seen in any other states. And it's to be clear, it's horrific. We're a state who symbolically unratified the 14th Amendment after it had already been passed oh. just to make a point. Oh, yeah. that's so, like, it was bad. And you said you're a religion major, which I honestly was not expecting knowing just vaguely about your thesis topic. Did you know that you wanted to study religion? This is a funny story. So I came into Reed thinking I was going to be a political science major. I knew that I wanted to go to law school after college and just kind of wanted to like major that would get me there. I think I had a lot of different interests. Like history was kind of cool. Philosophy is kind of cool. But I was like, yeah, political science. I think I sat in on one political science class and was like, hard no. Sometimes it's just not the vibe. It was just not my vibe. I can't even remember why I didn't like it. It just, it didn't click for me. But early freshman year, you know, we were signing up for classes. My advisor that I got, like just been assigned at the time, Gave me the wrong solar code. Hey guys, Albert stepping in just to add a little context for the uninitiated here. Solar is the service we use to sign up for classes at Reed, so no solar code means you don't get to sign up for any classes. Now let's get right back to it. And I got like, you know, this was early freshman year. Like, I just had no idea what was going on. So I was like trying to sign in. It wasn't working and he wasn't emailing me back, but I didn't even know who he was because we hadn't met at this point. Oh my God, that's Absolutely. such a nightmare. It was such a nightmare. And so finally, like 30 minutes before solar closed, like, for good um, for the first round of signups that he sent me my code. And so I had to sign up and like no classes were available. Mm. And so the only classes besides like Hume that had any room was 
intro to Hinduism and intro to Judaism. So I just took all religion classes in Hume. And like, to be completely candid, I was super bitter about it in the beginning. I don't think I knew that I was interested in those classes at the time. I just like mm-hmm. never thought I was interested in religious studies. So I was like, why am I taking these? Is it like I wanted to take, yeah, completely different courses. And so like, initially it was like this. And then like within like five minutes of the first class, I absolutely fell in love. Aww. At the end of my first week, I was talking to Kristen Scheibel about wanting to change majors and just like fell in love and have not wavered since and did not waver. And yeah, the rest was kind of history. It sounds like but religion it, chose you. It did. It was a very weird, like, happy accident. But yeah. Let's talk some more about your thesis process. Can you... Tell me, say it's an average day, first or second semester, what would that look like? What would your thesis work be comprised of? In the fall, it was definitely just a lot of research and trying and hoping that there would be like credible materials on the subjects I was wanting to talk about and a lot of trial and error and just realizing that those really didn't exist. And then during that time, I was trying to write like a general chapter on organ history because I still didn't know exactly where I'd end up landing. So it was a little chaotic. So once I had picked my topic, it was just a ton of research. I did get to do some in-person archival research, which was great. And so I got to travel around the state a little bit, which was a really cool experience. I was also able to get a research proxy. So I ended up tracking down some of his letters at an archive in New Orleans. And so there was a student at Tulane who was sending me you know, scant copies of the letters. But most of what I was doing was just combing through these primary sources, mostly letters, and just trying to kind of extract a story out of them. And so it was a little bit challenging as almost all of the letters that I were dealing with were Obed Dickinson writing to the American Home Missionary Society, who were essentially like his bosses. Uh. So you see him kind of sugarcoating things sometimes or saying things aren't that bad, but then you see other letters from other people or accounts in newspapers indicate that might not have really been the case. So it's kind of like trying to extract the true story out of, yeah, what someone told their boss. Yeah. At the same time, his horrible handwriting and everything is inclusive. Oh and spelling was in the process of being standardized, but hadn't. So like the same word would be spelled three or four different ways in one letter. And like some of the people I was dealing with had seven or eight spellings of their names throughout their lives. Oh. So a lot of it was just, yeah, sitting, reading really, really old scanned pictures or PDFs of letters or going to archives and trying to find the story. I tried to work whenever I was free. I was also applying to law school at the time, so things were pretty hectic. I tried to do like a baseline, just kind of like whenever I could research throughout the week and then would write in these big bursts when I kind of inspired or excited by something. It was chaotic. I definitely was not a lot of sleep my senior year. Okay, so if you could go back and give advice to yourself first semester when you're trying to do this research, what do you think you would say? Just take a deep breath and trust in the process. I was super stressed that I just felt like I was trying and it wasn't working and I was genuinely putting the effort in and just not having anything to show for it because ultimately like the archives, the resources weren't there. Also sleep more. I think I should have been getting more sleep. I'm a nine hours type of girly. I feel like you make up for it in efficiency because if your brain's like not 
running at a hundred and you have to go back and redo your work, you're still losing those hours. 100%. Probably the biggest piece of advice, and this is more towards the end of my thesis process, like the second half in the spring, just to be more confident in myself and what I was thinking. Because I was dealing with a subject of some archival materials, a lot of which had never been discussed in any academic work before. There wasn't really any like source or person to turn to towards the end. I was becoming the expert on this and there was no one who I could ask about it, which was certainly a challenge. I think just like, yeah, having faith in my interpretations or in my analysis of the situation, which I think came with time, but I wish I had started doing that earlier. But that's so cool. You're like the expert on something. 100%. I think my thesis just helped me realize my like love for research and writing. When I first got to read, I literally couldn't write. I had a little bit of a weird track through high school and leaving high school and teaching myself to get to read. I feel like that's like weirdly common for readies specifically. It is. It is. It is weirdly common. But I basically had gotten to read and like, I think I'd written like two basic five paragraph, maybe slightly longer essays that were like intro, body, 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 conclusion. And like, I could not write and I had horrible anxiety about writing. I remember like touring read after I'd gotten in, hearing the tour guide like talk about thesis. And I was like, I'm going to find a way to get out of that. Or like, I'm not going to be able to do that. That is like one thing that you cannot get out of. You literally cannot. Hume 110 was rough. My (laughs) Hume teacher had to like sit me down and like tell me how to write an essay. I mean, going from that to then having my thesis be what it was, most of it, I don't know, 120, 30 something pages in the end. And most of that I wrote towards like the second half of my spring semester was a big one. But I think, yeah, just research skills, especially like archival research is just a weird type of research that hopefully I'll get to engage with again. And then I think just work ethic and dedication. Law school is a grind. Like, read was a grind, but honestly, like... Law school is more of a grind. And it's kind of like a full immersion thing of just like learning the laws, like learning another language. And so you're just kind of drowning in it before it clicks. But like research and writing skills are huge. And then just, yeah, the dedication and work ethic, especially at times when it feels impossible. Definitely, yeah, find myself relying on that a lot. You said you had a research proxy at Tulane. What was that like? How did you find them? Yeah, so that was like a really funny process. One other book that had been on Ovid Dickinson was a book from the 1980s that was not at all well circulated that basically typed up some of his written letters in an archive. But then you don't have to read the handwriting. Yeah. There were some factual inaccuracies and a lot that was omitted. And he mentioned the three Black members of his church once and like didn't even mention their names or anything. It was very different. A lot of them weren't even cited. Eventually, I found like a tiny thing in the back of the book that thanked the Amistad Research Center at Tulane. And I was like, what is that? So did some digging and found out they like had some of his letters despite him not really having any at all to my knowledge ties to New Orleans. Initially we were like, could I go down? But then there's some weirdness when like I needed to go down and I had another trip for Reed to DC. So I couldn't <laughs> um, and the finals and everything else that was going on. Because I was also like visiting law schools at the time. So I just could not afford to miss more school. So I basically like cold emailed oh. everyone in the history and like religion PhD departments that I could find. All of them ignored me. A couple of them were nice and just said like no, but did respond. I sent like 20 or 30 emails. And one person was like, no, but I have a student that I'm teaching who could help you. The student was very sweet. He was a high school senior. Oh my God. Especially when trying to construct the narratives of uh, Black members of the church, Black people were just so excluded (laughs) in accounts of Oregon history. 
And I think just trying to find their stories when histories work so hard to suppress them was certainly a challenge. And so a lot of what I had to do was reading against the grain where you would see racist conservative, at the time it was actually the Democratic newspapers, complaining about a Black person in Salem or complaining about the church. And they had a lot of horrific racist nicknames for the church. And so you would taking those and then kind of extracting the stories and seeing like, oh, wow, this person had a fascinating like blacksmith business in the town or was a soap washer or was doing like growing plants and things like that for the community. And so kind of a lot of it was looking at racist complaining and then trying to extract stories from that and see the ways in which the community was resisting those and asserting their presence when really, I mean, people tried really, really, really hard to just ignore them entirely. So that was, that was certainly a challenge. I can't even imagine that they had like the resources to write down their own experiences if they would have been like allowed to? Well, most of them were, they weren't educated at all. One of the fascinating things Obed did, and it was specifically his wife, because his wife had the same really progressive views on race that he did. They actually started teaching Black women out of their home. So it was it was the women especially, which is just fascinating. So Charlotte would work with them in her kitchen, educating them. And then you can actually see later on, found some old property documents and estate documents where you see one of them like actually signing their name. So they clearly like they were throughout this process, at least some of them were being educated to an extent to the point that they were able to write towards the end. But That's pretty cool. Obed was viewing people as racial equals at a time when no one else was. So it wasn't that he was just like, I think, more tolerant in the issue of race. But I mean, some of his stuff reads as like weirdly modern and really progressive. And so at a time when you have the civil war on one hand and you have someone writing that like, we're all one under God and all people are equal. It's, it was really fascinating. I, one of the scholars I worked with likened him to John Brown of Harper's Ferry. And I think that in terms of just the level of progressive views on race, he's the only person who kind of, I found that compares to Obed. It's really interesting and really unique for the time period. I love those people who were right about it. You know, like, People talk about being on the wrong side of history. It's cool to find someone who was on the right side of history. More or less. I will say, and something that I talk about in my thesis is a lot of at least what I believe inspired his views on race were his religious views. And so it wasn't really that like he didn't exclude them on the basis of race, but rather because they were Christian, he viewed them all as equal as Christians. And so I will say Mm. his letters are not nearly as sympathetic to Native Americans at the time. And you just do not see, I think, the same sympathy extended to their plight that he did to the plight of the Black members of the church. So a lot of it was grounded in the fact that they were Christians. But nonetheless, it was still really progressive for the time period. Interesting. What was the outcome of your project? And does it look like you expected it to when you set out? Yeah, so... My thesis was not at all what I was expecting in the beginning. For starters, I mean, I had no idea I would focus on Oba Dickinson exclusively, nor did I have any idea, I think, towards the end, just how much of the story there I would be able to find or even what story was there to begin with. And so I think the fact that I was able to talk about the lives of the Black members of the church, Robert and Polly Holmes and Elizabeth and William Johnson, something that I think I was really grateful for in the end, I just didn't know if it would be possible in the beginning. And And so I think ultimately, at least my goal, and I hope that my work was successful in doing this, was just to highlight the central importance of Obit Dickinson and Charlotte Dickinson and the Johnsons and the Holmeses in Oregon history. I think, you know, these stories matter and deserve to be amplified and glad to have been able to contribute to that. I'm fortunate enough, I'm actually currently working to adapt my thesis into a journal article. Throughout my thesis process, I had the help of Dr. Daryl Milner, who's a professor emeritus of Black Studies at uh, Portland State University. 
he's also my oral sport. Um, and so after the fact, sure, um, now we're working it. to kind of adapt it into an article version. We are fortunate enough to have a journal who's already expressed interest in the article. So it's really like I get to work on my timeline and whenever I'm ready, they know they want it. So that's been a really exciting experience. So during the thesis process, I came across a pretty disturbing incident involving the son of Robert and Polly Holmes, who are members of the church, their son, James. In this next part, in this next part, Perry talks about her research into an incident of violence against a black man. There's no graphic description, but if hearing about violence against black people and the failings of the justice system is something that's going to ruin your day, you can skip ahead to 23 minutes and 54 seconds, where Perry talks about the intricacies of the Klan in Oregon, or if you'd rather skip that too, you can jump to 25 minutes 50 seconds, where Perry's going to talk a little bit about applying to law schools while still at Reed. So James was wrongfully accused of theft and violently beaten by his white male accusers, who I later discovered, some of whom were members of the Dickinson's church. The record essentially paints the picture of an attempted lynching, and I think it's fair to characterize it as such. So James was arrested and eventually found not guilty. What's interesting is his lawyer did attempt to prosecute the white men who beat him, but they got off on a technicality because his name was spelled wrong in the record. He was Black, and had very little identity in their eyes. And I, I I don't know exactly what they got wrong, but I bet that they probably said it was someone else. It's kind of the sense that I got. It was really hard to kind of, I think, just figure out what exactly this was at the magnitude of the incident. So in his letters, Obed briefly mentions in one of them that he was criticized over the summer for condemning a violent incident involving a black boy, but he really doesn't provide any specifics. And then in one other like really random account from a descendant of one of the big figures in Oregon history from like the early 1900s. She talks about remembering Polly Holmes and the fact that Polly's son, Lon, was killed in essentially what was a lynching. But then there's actually newspaper evidence that talks about Lon being alive like 10 years later. And so in the few discussions of this, scholars are like, we really don't know what to do with this because it seems like he was alive and well like later on. I was fortunate enough do just honestly a lot of searching online and newspapers.com for trying to find stuff. I had the general dates so to figure out what happened and what this was. And this was more just so I could tell Obed's story. I had no idea like what actually had happened or how significant it was at the time. Um, and so I found that the newspapers were calling the boy Jim. And I was like, okay, well, it's clearly not long. There's something weird. At this point, I had become so familiar with the Black community in Salem, because at the time, there were only 19 Black people in all of Salem. So I knew almost everyone. I was like, there's only there's only James. And I was like, he's the only one who I could maybe make an argument for a gym unless someone just has a really random nickname. And so I was like, could it be him? But I had no other evidence. And so I just kept digging, kept digging. And then finally, like weeks later, I found a newspaper article that was talking about the incident that briefly mentioned the boy's parents were members of Obed's church. And so once I found out this was James Holmes and kind of got that confirmation, that was huge. And so working with Dr. Milner, we realized that to the best of our knowledge, Oregon historians did not know about this incident. They'd known something happened just from Obed's one letter, but no one knew that it was James Holmes or that he almost died from this, let alone the significance and kind of the uproar this caused in the community, more so because white men were getting stolen from, not because the community was sympathetic to the plight of a Black man. And so, yeah, so currently we're working to research and adapt the article, like I mentioned, because the magnitude of the incident and the fact that it was James Holmes was previously unknown. I really want to make sure like, I get my account of the story right and find all the possible resources on the subject. Who knows what else is out there in the archives? So currently just researching and we'll hopefully get it out there sometime soon, but I'm not really in a rush. I just want to make sure I get the story right. That's so cool. 
do you know what he was accused of stealing? It was like some petty cash stuff. It's really, really minor. So there had been some thefts over the summer and like it did seem to have happened. And then he was spotted with cash. Oh. And I guess had too much cash for a black man at the time. And they kind of just connected the dots. And I don't know if anything else happened, but that's all I can tell. That's the only evidence I can find. And it seems like the trial kind of supported that because it was dismissed pretty quickly. So I later found an ad in the newspaper that suggests that he might have had a, um, in some type of soap business he had with one of the white residents of Salem. So it's probably was from his business. But basically, it seems like he was a black man with cash and they connected the dots. That's brutal. Oh, my God. Well, it's really cool that you were able to find this information to sort of tell his story so much later. Do you feel personally connected to any of these people that you've been reading about? 100%. I feel like I know their stories inside and out and like know them almost. I feel like so connected and so passionate about it. And like objectively, it's a very niche part of Oregon history. But like most books are like, okay, whatever. We'll talk about like a sentence. I'm like, no, yeah. like this is everything. Like they're so important. And well, yeah, because it's like if that happened to somebody that you knew, your friends or your grandparents or something like that would obviously be important to you. Well, it's also like a pretty big deal just because there were so few Black people in Oregon at the time. I mean, we kind of know of like the major players. It's, you know, pretty talked about. It's definitely an emerging field, but like it's it's been talked about often. I think Oregon and Oregon racism and like later on the Klan was characterized as primarily nonviolent. And then they usually just talk about the one lynching, but the fact that, I mean, clearly that was not the case. Yeah. I think it changes a lot of characterizations of Oregon history surrounding the issue of race that I've come across in my research. I would find it hard to believe in general that the Klan anywhere was nonviolent. Well, the Klan in Oregon was really weird. Oregon worked very systematically to exclude Black people. By the time that it was 1920s, our Black population was so small, it was like less than 1% of the entire Oregon population, that what you saw in the Oregon Klan that was unique, and at the time, Oregon had the highest Klan members per capita of any state in the United States briefly during the 1920s, so like the second recoming of the Klan. But because Oregon has such a small Black population, you primarily saw the Klan here focus its sight on Catholics, and was virulently anti-Catholic. And Interesting. And obviously, they were still anti-Black, but it was more just that there was not that many Black people in the area to oppress. There was definitely a community, and there is you know, a strong NAACP chapter, and they fought them hard. But I think the kind of primary targets of their sites that you saw were the Catholics. That is so interesting. They have to have somebody to be mad at. You mentioned already that you're in law school, which congratulations. Um, by the way, did you take the LSAT like during your senior year and then just go straight to law school? Yes. Yeah, so I studied for the LSAT junior year summer going into senior year. And then I took it in the fall of my senior year and then applied and went straight through. That's so cool. And sounds like so much work. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I would recommend doing that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. But yeah, yeah. that is what I did. <laughs> Do you feel like your thesis impacted your post-read plans? I think it did to an extent. So I already knew that I was going to go to law school. And as I mentioned, I'm currently a first year at Stanford. My thesis helped me realize my passion for research and writing. And I think I will continue to pursue opportunities that will allow me to explore that. I'm also newly a member of Stanford's Prisoner Legal Services Pro Bono Project. So we go to a local jail in the area and provide incarcerated people with legal information on things ranging from criminal law and conditions of confinement to custody, release, and other miscellaneous civil matters. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do with my legal career, but I'm definitely interested in 
civil rights and human rights work. And then after law school, at least immediately, I know that I want to clerk for a federal judge, which is very research and writing intensive. So maybe not directly, but I think underlying themes are just passion for research and writing and an interest in law and history and critical issues of race and discrimination are definitely still there. Yeah, it sounds like writing, definitely an important skill to have, no matter what you're doing, pretty much. And what advice do you have to listeners who are starting read or starting their thesis? For starting a thesis, I really think just trust the process. You know, it might feel like an impossible feat at times. As long as you do anything towards your thesis other than procrastinating, you will get there. <laughs> your advisor will make sure you get there. And a lot of it just comes with time, which like, I didn't believe, I think, at the beginning, but it truly does. And then I say this with the caveat that, like, I know I would have rolled my eyes at this advice a year ago. My advice is just to enjoy the process. I think depending on what you choose to do after read, you might not have another opportunity to truly just dedicate yourself to a subject like you do in your thesising, let alone potentially become like the expert on it. And so sometimes I'll be like sitting in my doctrinal classes or learning about this one weird exception to contracts and just missing that and missing, I think, just the passion and excitement that comes with just like it's kind of like self-guided research or something that you just care so deeply about. And so I can just enjoy it while you have it, even though I'm sure very few people <laughs> will actually take that advice, but you'll see, you'll see one day. Right. I'm hoping that, I mean, I haven't picked my thesis topic yet. I'm a junior, but I'm hoping that I can find something that I actually care about enough to like study for nine months. You know what I mean? I think actually that's a really good point. And that's my, my other thing is choose something that you're passionate about. I think towards the end, I just fell so in love with my thesis topic and became so passionate about wanting to tell this story that I was like, all I wanted to do was work and research my thesis. The one that actually like, it's like a struggle to do my homework for other classes. So maybe within reason, but I think choosing a topic that you're passionate about is huge. If I wasn't, it would have been brutal, just dragging myself to the finish line. But it was almost like, like towards the end, I was like sad when I was done because I just kept wanting to work on this. I mean, I get to now because I'm working on my article, but yeah, choosing something that you actually care about and want to learn about, I think is everything. That's so cool. I'm so glad that you found something that you're so passionate about. Okay, and final question, one of my favorites. Is there anyone you want to thank or acknowledge for helping you with the thesis process? Oh, I love that one. So I'm beyond thankful to my partner, Andy, who's also a Reedy. He's a year above me, but he's now also at Stanford, as well as my family and my friends at Reed for their support. I really could not have done it without that, as well as the religion department, specifically the religion senior class of 2023, as well as to Mike Fote. Love Mike. Would not have been able to finish my thesis without Mike. As well as Kristen Scheibel. She was also just had a major um, guiding role throughout my time at Reed generally. And then as well as throughout my thesis process, even though she wasn't my thesis advisor, but Kristen's always there to help. And I'm also very thankful to Dr. Daryl Milner. Thank you so much for chatting with me and telling me about your thesis. Thank you. Thanks so much for getting on the podcast, Perry. All of us back at Reed are wishing you nothing but the best as you work through law school. I hope you'll join us again to hear more about what it means to burn your draft. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Albert Corellis. Your lovely host today was Reed student Tommy Schacht. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janica. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.